You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, winner of the Share Care Emmy Award for Social Storytelling and the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today we're going to be talking about when to use feedback when coaching and training your clients. I think this is important for a couple of reasons. There, there are some trainers who give feedback all the time, and some of their clients love that. They love the uh, knee this way, move the little toe that way, squeeze this, focus on that, but... but I don't, uh, maybe, maybe initially, but like, I'm not that kind of trainer. I'm a low feedback type of trainer uh, after I get past the early phases of training. So now in the early phases of training, I may spend a lot of time focusing on foam rolling uh, or stretching or how to squat. Then I'm going to spend some, any new exercise, like I'll spend some time on. And there are things I want to focus on. For instance, in foam rolling, I might focus on the muscle or the area I want somebody to foam roll, the slow tempo, uh, if I want them to do any active um, movement. I might give that. Then they get to stretches, and stretches are very specific because I want them to hold it for uh, 30 seconds if they're doing static stretches. And Certain stretches are going to pull on muscles in certain ways. If I want hip flexors, I know that a little internal rotation is going to get more psoas and iliacus. A little external rotation of the hip might get a little more TFL. So those are the kind of things that that I may focus on a little bit more. But once I teach it to you, then I'm not spending a lot of time. I'm certainly, as a client, I'm not sharing with you oh, we turn this in this way because I want to hit Iliacus and the psoas major. Uh, I don't necessarily do that unless people ask. Why? Because most clients just don't care about that kind of stuff. When we get to how to squat, I might give some very specific directions initially. Most clients don't ask why. They just follow suit because they are being trained. I'm moving them in a position that I want them to move in. The outcomes are important. But after I place them in the where I want them, I provide limited feedback. Some clients like that regular feedback about form and ongoing cues, but I don't like to do that very much because I want the client to focus on what they are doing without interruption. And if their movement falls within something that's called a performance bandwidth. So I want you to take note of this, these two words, the performance bandwidth. What is that? Performance bandwidth is what somebody can do that falls within your realm of correction. So if you have a very, very narrow performance bandwidth, then you're going to be cueing your clients all the time, even if they're pretty dialed in. Even if they they do a really good job, you're still going to give a lot of cues because you like chin this way and the shoulder here and then the big toe has to be there and the knees. And I know a lot of you are like, yeah, that sounds like NASM. Well, that's because uh, what we are going to do is we're going to set you up with this is kind of ideal. This is optimum, right? So the optimum performance training model, this is it might be where we put you in optimal movement patterns. Uh, and, and I use that around with some quotation marks because we don't necessarily know what that is, 
But what we do want to do is put you in a place where this is going to maximize your performance output or maximize the way that a particular muscle or group of muscles recruit. So a performance bandwidth, according to Schmidt uh, in his book, 1991, page 58, he says the performance bandwidth is a predetermined band of correctness. This is the, the band, the swath, the area of correctness. And it is, um, it is a spectrum. There's a spectrum of good movement. And then you can get to some movements that are not ideal. They are not optimal. And some, in fact, are not good, especially under load uh, or under impact. So uh, we've got another one from Weinstein in 1991, page 145, says it is the window of acceptable performance. That is the performance bandwidth. So if I'm working with athletes and I see them doing something and it's good, I don't give cues, even though there might be something like if I'm working with um, a boxer and they slip sideways and I want them to pitch forward maybe a little bit more and they're doing it, but not quite enough, but enough for me to not say anything, then I don't say anything because I want them to focus on what they are doing. I want them then, same thing with my weightlifting clients who, who I spend most of my time with, especially if somebody says, uh, can you tell me, can you let me know I'm doing all these squats? Are, is it okay? I'm like, if I'm not saying something to you, it is okay. However, if you feel something that you think maybe isn't right, then say something to me and let's talk out what your experience is and what it is that you think you can do better. And they're like, oh, oh, okay. I like that. And sometimes people will do exercises and it looks fantastic, but they feel weird things. And that's, that's strange for us as personal trainers. I mean, it's not strange. It happens regularly, but what do we do about that? If somebody says, oh, I feel it more here. I feel it more there on one side and not the other side, then there are might be some things that you can do. For instance, if they feel, I feel it in one glute, not the other. I feel it in uh, one of my hips or one of my calves, but not the other. There might be some exercises that you can do that says, okay, well, the movement looks fantastic, but I think that I can do an exercise that will get the other side that you're not feeling to activate. Or if you're feeling it somewhere that ideally you shouldn't be feeling it, maybe we foam roll that area and stretch that area. Find the muscle that we want to really be working, and then we do some activation on that area, integrate that into a movement pattern, go back and do the exercise and see if we're balanced out. <clears throat> Excuse me, but that might not be a visual version of the performance. So I'm asking when to cue, and my ideal of when to cue is well, when it falls out of this acceptable window of bandwidth or the acceptable window of performance. So it depends on who you ask as to what this acceptable window is. If we talk about squats, you're going to have a whole lot of different versions of what is acceptable. And, you know, at NASM, we'd like to say uh, tibia torso angle, 45 degrees. <clears throat> so if I, or not 45 degrees, but if my, my tibia shifts forward, let's say 20 degrees, my torso should shift the same direction for 20 degrees. Well, that's good because there's, and we say that because there's 20 degrees of ankle dorsiflexion. Um, but there are a lot of people who get a lot more range of motion at the ankle than 20 degrees. Some people, when they do their squats, 
they they fall forward a lot. So uh, an excessive forward lean. Well, I'm going to look at that and I might do some assessments and those assessments might be how long are their femurs compared to their torso? <clears throat> how long is their torso compared to their femur? How long are their feet? How long are their lower legs, the area between their uh, their knee and their ankle? So the, the shin length, all of that's going to be a factor. But if those are factors, then then how do I know when there's an actual limitation in dorsiflexion or there's an actual actual limitation in the hips? So I have to be able to make the assessment, which are visual assessments. How long is the torso? How long is the femur? <clears throat> how long is the lower leg? in relationship to each other, because you got long uh, femurs, then you're probably going to get an excessive forward lean. may not have anything to do with ankle dorsiflexion. It may not have anything to do with tight hips. How do I know? I can do some assessments. I can do some assessments. We can, we can do the assessment where, um, where you uh, move your foot away from a wall Keep your heel down. See if you can uh, you can get your knee to to touch the wall. So if you do that, then you probably have the range of motion. As long as the heel stays down, you might have the range of motion at your ankle. All right, so that may not be a problem. I can do a Thomas test and see if you've got range of motion at your hip. So if you do, if you don't have tight hip flexors, then it might just be a biomechanical lever length issue that you don't get this. But what does that mean for for me when I'm going through my assessments. Well, I have a performance bandwidth. I have an ideal of what works, but now I have to shift my idea of what's going on based on you and your body and your lever lengths and still address that range of motion. So, well, if my lever lengths are different, is the range of motion, is that is that um, chasing 20 degrees of dorsiflexion? Does that mean if everybody's leg lengths are different, then are their ranges of motion at joints different? Maybe, maybe, but but we will still look and see, can we get to 20 degrees of ankle dorsiflexion? And some people I've never gotten there, but I've moved them from two degrees to maybe 15 degrees. And for me and for them, huge win. That's a huge win. If you can get from two degrees of ankle dorsiflexion to, to 15 degrees. So I'll go with that. Well, what about other things when it comes to squat, like knee valgus or knee varus? So knees knocking, knees bowing out. Well, NASM, we'd like to say, can we keep the knees lined up between the second and third toes? That's idea. That's a very strict, that's a very strict form. Now, what is your responsibility is that you will say, now I have a performance bandwidth. Do I just say NASM says <clears throat> second and third toe and never leave that? Well, no, because the NASM is giving you, hey, this is where an ideal alignment is. But if the knee shifts in towards the big toe, is it going to explode? Are we going to lose a kneecap? No. If it moves out to the fourth toe or the fifth toe, uh, are we going to blow up? No, that stuff's not going to happen. However, I'm going to have a performance bandwidth. Mine is, I don't have to worry too much about uh, varus. I don't have to worry about too much of the knees bowing out. I'm not worried about people when their knees bow out. 
Uh, I very rarely get people whose bow out too much. And usually that just means that they start to invert at their foot. And if the, the first metatarsal head or the base of the big toe starts to come off the floor, I'm like, what is going on? Put your foot back down on the ground. You may need to bring your knees in closer to do that. If I might have some people that have bowed outside of their fifth toe, and I just think that's too far out, which means it's too much tibial internal rotation. And you're not going to, if you're, if your feet are straight ahead and your knees are turned out that much, that's not a great position for your knee. That tibial internal rotation, we can get about 30 degrees, but does that mean that we're in the best position to produce force? It, it, we are not. We're not in the best position to produce force if that's the case. So, um, so I don't want to be in that position. The big toe is the most valgus that I'll go. It's the most that I'll let the knees knock. If it falls with to or towards the big toe, I may not say anything. I may just let them keep squatting. <clears throat> and at the end of it, I might say, hey, is there anything that you did that you felt was a little off? Do you could do a little bit better? And they may not notice it. And I might say something about it. I might not. It's not wrong. It's just, are there like alignment protocols that I like to, to follow? So I may shift them back out. Now, if it falls within inside the line of their big toe then that is a that's a significant valgus and i don't like that and i will definitely stop what we're doing i'm about to ruin um the way that you're squatting right now then you ruined it i'm gonna make it into a much better position i'm gonna line you back up i might do some activations to get the knees to go out and sometimes y'all you don't need activations you just need a cue sometimes you just need a cue so we come up with how far is outside of acceptable. But that has to do with it far more than with just squats. It might be push-ups. Push-ups, you can look at shoulder position. Some people put their arms way out here. They get their hands above their head. <clears throat> so if you had them standing up instead of in a face down or prone position, and they just had their arms up standing at you, and they were pushing when their hands are lined up beside their heads, we're like, you would never do that. I don't do dumbbell presses from there. I might shift them to where it looks the same way that you would do a bench press or a dumbbell press. <clears throat> so are the elbows out to the side, like a 180 degree straight line from elbow to elbow? It's not wrong. It's not wrong. But sometimes it, it can put a little pressure up in the shoulder, can get you a little shruggy. So uh, I might shift them away. What about um, 45 degrees? So I'm not 180 degrees straight line. I might have this kind of 90 degree window that I can move my elbow to the side and back down to my torso. What about to my torso? Is it supposed to be 45 degrees away from my torso? Is it against my torso? Those are push-ups. They're all push-ups and they're different types of push-ups. Sagittal plane, transverse plane, in between the two. And those are all okay. Some people don't like the straight line. I still see people from this day with um, their hand position. So, you know, pigeon toe, people do pigeon hand push-ups. <clears throat> I don't know where that came from. I don't know why people do it. And it's a thing. So I, I cue people out of it. I ask them why they do it. They say, oh, that's how I was told to do it. And I say, why? And they don't know. And I don't know. So I have them put their hands in a straight position usually. All right. Particularly 
ranges of motion are limited in push-ups, particularly when you have clients that are a little bit weaker in the upper body. <clears throat> but the problem is, is that they'll go for greater repetitions with quasi push-ups instead of focusing on getting more range of motion and doing fewer push-ups. And even when they start to build strength, for some reason, in a push-up, people have this kind of stopping point and they don't go below it. That's my performance bandwidth limit. I am not okay with those limited range of motion push-ups. <clears throat> and I've had some folks that I've trained for years. One woman I had a conversation with just recently, and I'm like, you are far too strong to be doing push-ups like that. You've been training, you've been working, exercising, <clears throat> doing classes far too much of your life to be doing push-ups like that. And she was kind of bothered by it, but at the same time, she was like, yeah, that's true, actually. I've been exercising, love. she's a group fitness addict. And yet, in order for her to get the three minutes of push-ups that they're going to do, then you're going to only bend your elbow a, a degree and a half uh, to do a push-up, then yeah, that makes sense. So can we get a nice big range of motion? And where is your performance bandwidth? Mine, mine might be chest to the ground. Mine might be um, when the elbows get to the side, 90 degrees on each side or at that 180 degree line. It might be that. But I'm going to focus on where I am right now relative to my client, who they are, what their goals are, their body, their alignment, their mental state, goals, needs, wants, all of that stuff. That determines how and who and why I cue. But all of this falls within a performance bandwidth. Forward head, can it go ahead a little bit? Man, sometimes, sometimes they're a little bit forward and I don't say anything. Sometimes, at forward head, I usually say stuff about it. I don't like it. Uh, upright posture, kyphosis, especially carrying weights, holding things, squatting, goblet squats. When I get flexion in the spine, upright, be upright. I'll cue that. <clears throat> How do I cue it? Usually, I do a visual cue. So when people have a forward head, I usually just touch my chin and retract my head back and they see it and they immediately know what to do. I'll touch my belly. That means tighten your core. I'll give a little tap tap on my abs and they tighten their core. I might touch the center of my chest and sit up straighter, stand up straighter and immediately adjust their posture. So I'm not, I'm not around my clients giving this constant, especially verbal feedback, I'm just giving little like taps on my body and visual cues. If I need to progress it, I will. <clears throat> and sometimes clients don't know what they're doing. So then I'll say, this is how you're doing it. Because I'm giving a cue and it's not registering because they think that they're doing what I'm asking them to do. And that's going to happen with you and your clients throughout your training career. So you have to show them the position they're in. This is what you're doing. This is what I want you to do. Do you see the difference? And then can you perform the difference? So when, when is the right time to cue? When your client's movement falls outside 
of the performance bandwidth, that predetermined band of correctness, that window of acceptable performance. That's when you cue. And I also want to say this. There are a lot of people out there doing corrective exercises before they do a, they do a cueing practice. <clears throat> and I give this example a lot. When people squat, I was taught to squat, turn your feet out, arch your back, and look up towards the ceiling. Well, I don't want my clients to squat that way. So when I see people squat that way and I do an assessment, I don't immediately say, wow, look at how tight the muscles are in the back of their neck, forcing them to look at the ceiling. What tightness that must be. I just think that's, they don't know what I'm looking for, or they think that's what I'm looking for, and that's what they're doing. And their back arches excessively, which is what I was told to do. And I think, oh, man, maybe they were taught what I was taught. And their feet are turned out really wide. And in an assessment, I don't want that at all. I want to do the assessment so I can check range of motion <clears throat> at the dorsiflexion. So I have them squat the way I want them to squat. I line them up. I readdress. I cue them what I'm looking for. And I see if they can do it. And if they can, great. And they add weight. They may not be able to do it. Some people with weight, their squats look much better than when their body weight. Sometimes the weight allows you to push through some of the compensations and the tightnesses that you may have. But I need to cue prior to correcting. Now, if I give the cues and they understand the cues and they are attempting to do what I said when I cued them and they can no longer or they cannot do it, maybe they don't need to be cued. Maybe they need to be corrected. And then we go through a corrective exercise strategy. And that is when I think that is helpful. When to cue, when it falls outside the performance bandwidth and cue oftentimes prior to going into this uh, corrective exercise routine. Because I will tell you this, if you go through that corrective exercise routine and they still think that that's how they're supposed to squat, you've done corrections for months and they keep squatting that way because you didn't cue them. It's not because there's something wrong with their body. It's something wrong with their trainer. <laughs> their trainer didn't tell them the way that they were supposed to do it. Or a previous trainer told them this is what it looks like. And instead of cueing, you just said, oh, that's your body's position in a squat. That needs to be corrected. No, it needs to be cued. So when do you cue? Outside of the bandwidth, before you go into a corrective exercise strategy. If they can't do the cues, then you do the corrections. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I thank you for listening to the NASM CPT podcast. Like, subscribe, share with your fitness friends and family. You got questions for me, reach out to me. You can hit me up on Instagram at dr.rickritchie or you can email me at rick.ritchie at nasm.org. Y'all keep inspiring people to fitness. Thanks for listening. This has been the NASM CPT podcast.